I'm going to give a quick, uh, maybe, give a quick plug for the book of the month. Um, and it is actually just one month this time because it's only that big, small, okay? But this book is really, really important. I really, I wouldn't say this for all the books of the month just because I want to be realistic, but this one, I really mean it when I say I hope everybody in our congregation buys it and reads it. Um, it's called Resolving Everyday Conflict by Ken Sandy. Okay, so might be particularly um, relevant at this time of year when sometimes holidays together for you and your family may not be, you know, filled with wonderful, um, sweet, harmonious times. It could be really painful and filled with conflict. Um, so this could be doubly appropriate right now. But this is good for every aspect, every relationship in your life. Um, Ken Sandy wrote a book, I don't know, 15 years ago called The Peacemaker, and it's excellent. If, if anybody knows biblical peacemaking, it's Ken Sandy. But the book is kind of thick, and there's a lot in it. It's really good, but it's, you know, not everybody's going to read that book. So I'm so glad that they brought this, they put this little kind of boiled down version together. There are other resources. There's one for kids. Um, we still, we've gone through that with our kids. We still use it. I sent two children that will remain nameless to the peace table um, yesterday even to work things out. And um, so I just can't recommend this book highly enough. Even in the boiled down version, um, he talks about the slippery slope of conflict. Okay, just picture this. This is just to whet your appetite. Imagine a half circle like this. If you're on top, especially if it's kind of slippery, you need to stay up here, but the closer you get to one side or the other, the easier it is to slip down to the sides. So up on the top, it's peacemaking. And on the sides, it's peace-breaking and peace-faking. Okay, so this is flight when conflict comes. So we can overlook, but overlooking quickly slides into denial and running away. You see how that works? You need to stay. The slippery slope of conflict is what he calls it. Um, over here, it's fight. So some of you, when conflict arises, you just put your dukes up and you're ready for it. You're going to win. Other people run for the hills. So they fake peace. These people break it. We need to make peace. This is a gospel impulse. This is blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Huge stuff. Bear fruit in your life everywhere, at work, in your marriage, in your family, in this place. For the sake of the good of our body, read this book. It will bear fruit down the road. So, okay, that's the plug. <clears throat> we are going to be in Luke 18. We're actually going to finish Luke 18, Lord willing, this morning. Um, we'll take next week out of Luke, and then um, I think we're going to begin 2013. Um, looking again at our vision and values, and then we'll be back in Luke 19 uh, early in the, in the new year. Um, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke 18, the text for this morning is found on page 1047. While you're turning there, I want you to think about a couple um, scenarios here. Uh, what if you were a college basketball coach and your assistants... Okay, these are guys or ladies, if you're a female coach, female team or whatever, people that you worked with for years and they kept embarrassing you by betraying this complete lack of grasp 
on your offensive and defensive strategies. Okay, so maybe these, these kinds of um, clueless moments came in interviews, you know, after the game or in university uh, event settings or other social venues, and it's just so embarrassing, so ridiculous. What would you do if you're the coach, if this just kept happening? Or, to change the picture, but it's the same idea, what if you were the owner of a roofing company or a framing company or, you know, fill in the blank, and the guys on your crew that you personally trained kept displaying this complete lack of proficiency with your trade? What would you do? And you can imagine how we could multiply examples here, okay? I think you get the idea. We'll talk about this at the end, but being a disciple of Jesus Christ is actually something, and wonderfully so, completely different than being an employee or being an assistant coach like that. Um, like I said, we'll talk about it more at the end, but maybe just keep that in mind as we go through. We're going to read verses 31 to 43, and then we're going to pray again briefly, and we'll dive into our study. So, Then Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following Jesus, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Let's pray. Father, would you please open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this morning. You are the God who gives sight to blinded sinners like us who naturally and because of the the work of the evil one to blind the minds of unbelievers, we are, we are people who are blind lest you open our eyes. And even once you have opened our eyes to see our sin and to see Jesus as the only Savior and our Savior, we can easily become blinded because we've got our eyes fixed on the wrong things and we're captivated by the wrong things. And we pray that you would train our gaze this morning on Jesus. And I pray that by your grace, we would love what we see and we would follow him. In his name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, so last week we saw a rich young ruler who approached Jesus to ask him what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Even though this guy was moral, okay, I've kept the commandments since my youth, these love your neighbor commandments, um, he did not have childlike faith. He didn't see himself as a humble, helpless receiver. Okay, Jesus exposes that unbelief by showing him that he really loved his money more than God. Okay, he, he did this cost-benefit analysis when Jesus said, go sell all you have, um, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. Like the kind that moth and rust can't touch and thieves can't come in and steal. That kind of treasure. And he looked at that and looked at his wealth and turned and chose the monopoly money. So he was blind to his need. Um, And so Jesus says to him and to everyone listening, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier to thread a thousand pound camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, to which all these people around respond, then who can be saved? They were impressed with this guy. He's powerful. He's rich. He's obviously blessed by God. He's moral. He's kept all the commandments. He's, he's approaching you. I mean, this, is, this guy is like a model of discipleship. He wants to know what else he needs to do to get in. Peter then pipes up. We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus responds, any sacrifice in this life for the sake of my kingdom will receive many times more in this life and everything in eternity. In other words, there's no ultimate sacrifice in the Christian life. So then on the heels of this, Jesus takes his disciples aside and reminds them of, again of where they're headed, okay, where he is headed and where they are headed if they're following him. So <clears throat> if you've been around at all in Luke, or even if you haven't, you need to know this about Luke, is there's this thematic emphasis on the journey to Jerusalem in the book of Luke. Okay, it stretches from 951, should do it backwards, 951, um, which is when Jesus set his face like flint. He determined to go to Jerusalem, of course, to die, all the way to 1948, okay, which is when he's actually in Jerusalem and, you know, his suffering is about to begin before his death on the cross. So we'll look at chapter 19 um, in the new year. But this emphasis on the road to Jerusalem has a couple of of, um, significant connotations to it as you go through the book. The two main ones are, one, the divine necessity of this journey. Okay, God has a plan. Jesus is fulfilling this plan. He's not backed into a corner when he arrives in Jerusalem. He's not... Um, betrayed helplessly, beaten and put to death as a victim. That's not the case. This is the plan all along. So Jesus is predicting this over and over again. He's going there willingly. He, he set his face like Flint to Jerusalem, resolutely to suffer and die and rise again. Okay? No one, no thing can stop him, can derail him in that process. So when he predicts his suffering and death, he says things like this, because he does it multiple times in the book of Luke. In 922, it says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. The second theme that's regularly associated with the journey to Jerusalem is the nature of and the path of discipleship. Okay, so this journey that Jesus is taking to Jerusalem to die has significance 
for anyone who wishes to follow him. Who are Jesus' true disciples? He's not the military political figure that they were anticipating. He's not going to go to Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman oppression, set up this literal physical kingdom of God now and forever. If you want to follow this Messiah, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. So the journey always has these discipleship connotations. Are you, are you going to trust me and follow me? I may be changing your categories. Who do you see me to be? Are you going to follow me? So in this text this morning, our text, we have the, the last of these predictions about the destination of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem um, in verses 31 to 34, 31 to 33, and then the disciples' response in 34. So look at it again, 31. He took the 12 aside. He said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things, all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. You see, again, the emphasis on God's plan and its, its accomplishment. This is going to happen. For he will. This is great. The, the wills of God. He's just going to do this. It's not in question. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Again, no helpless victim. So it's not going to be a defeat when this happens. It's part of the plan. Okay, so he predicts his suffering in detail. He predicts his resurrection even. All that God has ordained will be accomplished. So he's putting his disciples on notice that his suffering and death is not victimization. It's not defeat. This is the sovereign sacrificial lamb that set his face like flint, and he's going right where he intends to go. Okay? But look at verse 34. The disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. You get the point? <laughs> like three times over. It might seem a little amazing to us, a little puzzling to us. We live on this side of the cross. We know how the story goes. You know, how, how did they hear this? How did they not understand this? I mean, maybe they interpreted it in some sort of, you know, symbolic sense. You know, well, Jesus sometimes talks cryptically in parables and stuff, and we don't always understand what he's saying unless he interprets it for us. And maybe it's something like, you know, back there in 1733, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Maybe it's that kind of death. Maybe he's speaking in parables. We know we probably should understand, but we don't. But there's actually more going on here than just their naivety or simpleton, you know, like thick-headedness. Look at what the text says. The meaning of this statement was hidden from them. Turn back to Luke 9. This isn't the only place Luke points this out. You've got to track with me here. There is a point at the end of this. Okay, so follow along here. Luke 9, 43. <clears throat> it's a clear parallel to um, our text in chapter 18. So right at the end of verse 43, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement. Sounds familiar. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. 
And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. And an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest, which shows they really didn't get it, right? And then Jesus does this thing where he pulls the child and says, whoever receives a child in my name, which he's just done in chapter 18, right? Verses 15 to 17. So it's almost as if it's all intentional. True spiritual sight was hidden. It was concealed from them. So what's going on here? Well, we are going to need to pull back and see what, what is going on in the, the book of Luke as a whole and even outside of it. Look, now turn to the end of the book, okay? End of the story. Chapter 24. Remember those two people on the road to Emmaus? Jesus comes up. He, he's already been resurrected. Um, they don't recognize him somehow. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> what, are, what are you, like the only visitor here? You don't know what's going on? Well, actually, you guys are the ones that don't know what's going on, but we'll get to that in a minute. Twenty-four, twenty-five, chapter 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? See again, divine necessity. This is a plan. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself, concerning himself in all the scriptures. And we find out later their hearts were burning inside them as they hear this sermon. Don't you wish you could have heard that sermon? So look down at verse 30. He, you know, looks like he's going to keep walking. They say, oh, come on, you know, come on, eat, eat with us. It's late. When he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And then look down at verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you. This is to his disciples. Now he's appeared to them. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Stuff that was hidden and concealed before is now open to them. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Ready for the book of Acts? Here it comes. You are witnesses of these things. Now that you see, now that you've had your eyes opened, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, Holy Spirit. You're to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Okay, so it took the resurrection for their eyes to be opened. And Jesus had to open them, okay? Now, it is quite likely that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is doing some very interesting, important things in his gospel with the themes of sight and blindness, okay? <clears throat> Look back at our text. <clears throat> you remember how Peter, he says, Behold, it's back in 28, last week's text. Behold, look, look, Lord, look. This is a, this is a sight word. We usually just kind of blow by it as behold, like it's, it's kind of a throwaway introductory remark. No, it's look, 
We've left our homes. Then Jesus says in verse 31, look, we're going up to Jerusalem. And then this is hidden from them. They can't see it. And then there's something about a blind man who sees. So this stuff is all pretty interesting. We should see that maybe there's something going on here with blindness and sight. Some of this I'm still working out. I was reading a journal article about it last night, but let me just mention briefly what I think is happening here. Remember that thing we just looked at in chapter 24 at the end? When was the last time in the Bible that you heard the language, then their eyes were opened and they knew? Anybody? The garden. So Jesus broke some bread and in giving it to them said, he, he revealed himself to them, then their eyes were opened and they knew. What happened back in Genesis 3, 7? Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. It is quite possible that then their eyes were open and they recognized him is intended to signal the reversal of the curse. It is the beginning of the new creation work that Jesus came and died and rose again to inaugurate and eventually complete. So all the blindness, think about it. This is big picture stuff, okay? But the Bible is one story and it's all unified. So all the blindness in this world, be it physical, spiritual, all of it, physical to be sure, deeper and more importantly, spiritual blindness that's a result of the fall, all that blindness that we're all just enslaved by, we can't overcome that. Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again so that he could reverse the curse and open eyes. So the desire to be like God, knowing good and evil, plunged the entire human race into darkness, the blindness of unbelief and idolatry. And then Jesus, the light of the world, came on this mission to rescue us from the domain of darkness, transfer us to the kingdom of light. According to Jesus himself, remember, we we read it this morning in the scripture reading, chapter 4, he's quoting Isaiah 61, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. So in the big picture of Luke's place, of God's big plan and story, where does this go? Where, where, where's Luke's sequel go? The eye-opening is intended to lead to mission. You're witnesses. I just opened your eyes and your hearts, and you're witnesses. You've seen. You've seen and heard. Now go tell. So that's big picture what's going on here, and the blind man's going to be a little preview, a little parable a little illustration of this big picture plan that God is doing. It shouldn't surprise us. Luke eight sixteen. no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. So it shouldn't surprise us that what follows these verses about the, you know, look, Jesus. Oh, no, no, no. Look, disciples, and they're blinded to his purposes it shouldn't surprise us that Luke follows this with 
the story of this blind man who can see. So there's irony in both cases, the irony of blind sight. So now let's look at this blind man, verses 35 to 43. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So Jericho, verse 35, means that they're on the last leg of this journey. Okay, they're only about 20 kilometers from Jerusalem. So the journey's drawing to a close, which means the passion is coming. The reason why he's going to Jerusalem, we're going to find out. Most likely these are, I mean, sojourners heading up to Jerusalem for Passover is pretty normal. Um, but a crowd like this, a little abnormal. So there's this blind beggar, um, and he's wondering what all the commotion is about. His blindness would have forced him in that day and age to be a beggar. Okay, he didn't have any other options open to him. And in the social stratification of the time, a blind beggar was viewed as an expendable. So this group of undesirables was actually lower than the peasants and actually lower even than the unclean and the degraded. This is the lowest of the low if you are this blind beggar type. So he gets wind that, you know, the passing crowd means that Jesus of Nazareth is passing through. Okay, obviously Jesus' reputation had, had preceded him. You know, news spread fast about this teacher, this wonder worker or whatever. But this man displays some remarkable insight into the person of Christ. He is the only one in the Gospel of Luke that refers to Jesus as the son of David. He cries out and begs for mercy from the son of David. You know what that title, what the connotations are with that title? It's amazing that that title's on this guy's lips. We haven't heard those echoes about David and the forever king since chapter 1. The birth narrative. That's, what I, that's why I read that this morning. This is a messianic, a kingly title. Remember what the angel said to Mary? He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And then the angels, remember with the shepherds? Don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy for which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Messiah, Christ, the anointed King, who is Lord. Okay, so there's all these connotations with this title. And it's on nobody else's lips but this blind beggar in the book of Luke. You remember back in 2 Samuel, don't turn, take the time to turn there, but God made a promise to David that he would build him a house, a dynasty. He promised, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So the son of David was the, you know, this messianic king that they hoped for. He'd come and deliver from enemies and establish the throne and the kingdom of God forever. So here's this blind beggar referring to the peasant carpenter Jesus. I mean, isn't this Joseph's son? 
as the son of David, the heir to the throne of the dynasty established by God. Does he really believe? Does he really see Jesus as the forever king that was prophesied? So immediately he's shushed by those who were leading the pack. Who's that? Is that the disciples? We don't know, but they're the ones leading the pack. And it's reminiscent of how the disciples rebuked and sought to push back those bringing the infants and the children just a few verses earlier, right? Remember that? Back in 1815. So these people in the crowd rebuke the blind man in order to push him away from Jesus. They are hindering a little one from coming to him. They should have known better. Not only because Jesus welcomed the little children, but you know what? Back in the law in Leviticus, it says you shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind. Certainly literal. But here, metaphorically, they're putting a stumbling block, trying to, before the blind. And this is exactly why Jesus came. I came to proclaim sight to the blind, recovery of sight to the blind. But they don't get it. So once again, like they did with the infants and the children, they're saying basically, you're a nuisance. You aren't worth Jesus' time. You're one of the expendables. And yet the irony is so thick because this guy's the one who is exemplary in his insight into the person of Jesus. So Jesus then asks him, I mean, he sees more clearly than Jesus' disciples do. So Jesus stops, asks this man to be brought to him, and he asks him what Jesus, you know, what do you want me to do for you? You said, have mercy on me. What do you mean? You just looking for a handout? No, he wasn't looking for a handout. He knows that Jesus can do the impossible. He can make the blind see. So he says, Lord, son of David, and now Lord, I want to regain my sight. So just like that that Gentile centurion back in chapter 7, who just, how in the world did he know Jesus was like this? Or that woman of the city in chapter 7, just clear insight, blind Pharisees, criticizing her, slandering her. The Samaritan leper, Samaritan, he's the one that sees back in chapter 17. All these outsiders had this ironic insight into the person of Christ, and all the insiders are blind. Okay, remember that question back in 1826, who can be saved and who can be saved? The answer, well, how about a blind, expendable, lowest of the low beggar? That's a good answer. Who can be saved? Who can enter the kingdom? Blind beggars who see by sovereign grace. Okay, so this blind man who couldn't see Jesus could see Jesus more clearly than his disciples who had been with Jesus for a couple years by now. We'll see in the new year, same thing goes with Zacchaeus. This is really important theme right now. There's another guy that couldn't see Jesus, not because he was blind, but because he was too short. And so he couldn't see Jesus so he said, I got to get to Jesus. So I'm going to climb up this in a tree so I can see him. One writer wisely reflected on the linkage between this blind man's story and Zacchaeus, which follows. He wrote that they reveal that not being able to see Jesus was far more serious than not being able to see. So, how do we apply this? Can, can you see? Can I see? Can we see what we're supposed to see here? 
How do we apply this? I think we could really miss out on the impact of this and so many texts if our categories for application are too narrow. Okay, so without a show of hands, how many of you like a sermon to have a good, clear, concrete bullet point list of things to do at the end? Because I want to know what to do. Like, what am I supposed to do? Well, that's not all bad, okay? There's lots of commands in the Bible, and we dare not mute them. Okay, so like Romans 12. (laughs) You know, command like one after the other, after the other, after the other. That's good. All God's commands are good for us. They're all to be obeyed by faith in the gospel of grace. Okay, so Romans 1 to 11, all this mercy and grace is what empowers you to live out 12 and beyond, okay? For instance... We don't have to pull the cart of obedience in our own strength. We can't do it. We need to trust Jesus so that the cart of our life is hitched up to the mighty Clydesdale that is Jesus, and he'll pull us, obeying these commands, right? Okay, but here we go. Luke 18, this isn't the only place like this. This is all story here, folks. It's all story. There's no, like, nice little break at the end, and the moral of the story is do this, don't do that. No, it's not there. There's no commands for us here. There's lots of texts like this in the Bible. So, so how does this text, this part of the story, intersect with our lives? Do you ask that question regularly when you're reading the Bible on your own or with others? So I was thinking about this, I think this week, or maybe it was last week. Um, and one thought kind of occurred to me. So Beth and I, we talk a fair amount. <laughs> Okay, not as much as we'd like oftentimes, but a fair amount. We love each other. We're married. Do I go asking myself every time we talk? Now, how do I apply this to my life? Okay, like when she's done kind of sharing how her day went or, you know, telling me how something happened, you know, and how she feels about it or whatever. Or... Do I directly say to her, you, you said a lot here. Now, can you boil it down and give me the bottom line of what, what you want me to do this week? Okay? Now, actually, husbands, for some of you, that might be a good thing for you to actually say. Um, but that's a different message. Um, do I say, when you give me direct commands, Beth, then I know how you, you know, what you say applies to me. Otherwise, what you say might be nice, maybe even important, but I don't know what in the world has to do with me. Uh, And what's for lunch? (laughs) I hope not, okay? So does the fact that she doesn't tell me what she wants me to do in this or that conversation mean that Lots of things she says have no bearing on me and my future attitudes, thoughts, actions, or words in relation to her. Of course not. When she reveals things about herself, directly or indirectly, I hopefully am attentive, and that knowledge actually impacts the way I relate to her and even do other things outside of her that have to do with her. So why do I bring all this up? Well, we need to reflect a little on how this story intersects with our lives. And I think one of the things we need to see is that the character of our Savior 
is revealed here, and seeing it is exactly the application. We need to see it. We need to love it. We need to just be attentive and drink it in so that it affects the way that we live. So go, go back to those opening illustrations. Jesus is not an employer, folks. He's not a recruiter looking for a few good men or women. He takes the nothings and the no ones and the zeros and the failures and the helpless and the weak and the needy and the broken and the sick and, and also the ones that think that they are strong and think that they're something and he makes them what he wants them to be. He's not taking applications and looking for impressive resumes. I mean, imagine reading Acts Imagine this. Imagine reading Acts and seeing how the disciples, the apostles, were so bold and courageous. If they had all been in the Gospels, just at the top of their game, the top of their class, they're the ones with the peculiar insight into the purpose and the person of Jesus left and right. Would you take heart from that? you would probably dismiss so much of this mission because it couldn't possibly apply to you because you're not a super person, super spiritual apostle type person. So would you think that you, you could go and make disciples? No, but listen, listen to the story. Pay attention to the story. Instead, let the blindness, let the thick headedness of the disciples sink in. This is great. This is really good news. Let the insight of a nobody, an expendable, a blind beggar sink in. The thickness of the disciples doesn't lead Jesus to say, oh, I got to get myself a new team. These guys are pathetic. No, this is an opportunity to display the reality and the power of the gospel. We don't need to be good enough, smart enough to follow Jesus. The only ones who can truly follow Jesus are those who know they can't. And sometimes we need to be shown that we can't. It was a gracious thing for Peter to deny Jesus three times. That was a gift to him. Bull in the china shop that he was. The things that are impossible with man are possible with God. Jesus is not looking for a few good men. Jesus is looking to make spiritually dead people alive. He's looking, he's seeking lost people to find. He's looking for sick people to heal. He's looking for enslaved people to free. These guys, like, we should just pay attention whenever we see their thick-headedness and go, yes, there's hope for me. Yes, there's hope for me. These guys changed the world. So again, this week I was just thinking about this a little bit and thinking this is, you get this picture, this beautiful picture of this Pied Piper figure that is Jesus. Okay, playing beautiful gospel music. You know, at first it's actually dissonant in the ears of people who are self-confident and self-assured think that they know what they're doing and they're, they really have a resume to offer God. But the people that are poor in spirit, they know they've failed, they know they're broken, that they're a mess. 
They hear this gospel music, grace for the broken and sinful and weak and needy and helpless, and he's walking through this war zone of wreckage that's all a result of the fall. Oh, we could really see if we eat this. Blindness comes in. Brokenness comes in. So he's walking through this war zone of wreckage. And his grace is, he's this light just bouncing brightly through the dark war zone. And his grace is opening eyes and hearts and freeing slaves, leading this parade of happy, healed, helped people who follow after their hero, follow after their healer, follow after their savior. Isn't this great? And then as we go, we're following him, we're praising him, we're glorifying him. Others are going to see this parade. They hear it. They're going to give praise to God. And they're going to want to join the parade. I mean, this is good news. Anyone can qualify for this kingdom. And anyone can be an effective representative for this kingdom. Guess what? At this point in the story, the blind beggar becomes a better witness than the disciples who've been with Jesus for a couple of years. The weaker, the better. All the more opportunity for the king to show the sufficiency of his grace, to show how his power is perfected in our weakness. Okay, so we're going to close with the first verse of Amazing Grace. Very appropriate. Amazing Grace, how sweet Is it sweet? How sweet the sound. If it's not sweet, we need to, Lord, would you just unclog our ears? What is, what kind of worldly cotton yuck do we have stuffed in our ears that we can't hear this as sweet news about your amazing grace? I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Oh God, remind us of our blindness so that we are struck in fresh ways this morning with the amazing grace that you have poured out on us in Christ. That blind, needy, bankrupt, spiritual beggars like us can see And Lord, if there are any here that are blinded, thinking that they are too bad, or blinded, thinking that it depends on their performance and their spiritual resume, would you open their eyes by your amazing grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Trust that many.